Can you be religious and feminist? Depending on what side you're on, the answer will vary. In this special edition, we take a look at those who refuse to believe feminism is incompatible with religious faith. It seems faith. like there's a growing anti-feminist movement within a lot of different religious communities. and it's interesting. The two largest religions in the world, Islam and Christianity, have scriptures that ratify gender roles and imply that men have a God-given authority over women. These scriptures form the basis of laws and customs that govern gender equality in many communities. Feminism is a range of social movements, political movements, and ideologies that aim to define and establish the political, economic, personal, and social equality of the sexes. Do you want me to keep reading? <laughs> no, thank you, Siri. So, it's like this. Feminism is supposed to be based on equality of the sexes, right? But some scripture insinuates that men and women are not equal, that men have this authority over women. It doesn't exactly fit. In this episode, we speak to two women who have found ways to reconcile these seemingly incompatible ideologies. Hi, my name is Aisha Salahuddin, and I like girls. This is a podcast about African women and the different experiences life throws at us just for being women. A quick note, this episode is not scrutinizing anybody's faith or ideology. It's just listening. Hi, I'm Kauthar Ahmed, and I am currently working to becoming a tech bro. So I'm currently um, into software development and quality assurance testing. And more importantly, I'm a gender advocate. And yeah, I live in Dublin, Ireland. <laughs> Kalfa was born into a Muslim family and her parents raised her to be one. Um, I grew up in a Muslim home and uh, just like a lot of people, majority of Muslims who grew up in typical Muslim homes in the Southwest, you are just, you know, born into that family and you just know that I have to be Muslim. I have to follow these rules, but you really don't understand why. So because you see your parents doing the same thing, you just want to follow them, you understand? So so as though you understand the reason why you have to maybe go to Quran school or why you have to pray or why you have to wear the hijab. She did everything expected of her as a Muslim, but she struggled with understanding the point of doing those things. Okay, like covering my hair, for example. Um, growing up, I, I used to color my hair, but at some point, I, I stopped. Uh, so... For a couple of years, I, I did not cover my hair. Uh, and th- this was because, and, I mean, I had a lot of fights with my, with my father. But this was because I, I, I did not understand why I had to. And uh, because also at that time, I was still like quite young. I, I had, you know, other Muslim friends my age who did not cover their hair. So I'm like, why? Why do I have to be? Do? Why? Why are you telling me that I'm going to? You know, I'm sinning by not covering my hair. I don't think this is a sin and things like that. So, but nobody really explained or maybe showed me the reason why. Um, you know, you know, maybe just walk me through the whole thing. Nobody really did that. I was just like, you have to. We all know how African homes work. They're not the easiest spaces to have difficult conversations in, especially those about faith. So, 12-year-old Kalthar never really asked her parents why she had to wear the hijab. You know, um, a typical Nigerian home, <laughs> you never really have uh, you know, all, the deep, all these deep conversations with your, with your parents. But I, I did ask my, 
Quran teacher. So it was a Quran memorization school. You just literally go there to memorize Quran. It wasn't the typical Nuiliku, Samia, this thing. So it was a Quran memorization school and then um when I went there, you know, I told you I didn't really understand why I had to use hijab. But when I when I got there, I saw people using like very hijabs that are longer than mine. And uh, I I was I was you know asking questions like well why do I have to mm-hmm. and then they would tell people oh you have to increase the length of your hijab blah 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 you're coming to Quran memorization school so my teacher was a woman and then I asked uh why I had to increase the length of my hijab to her own length and she was like uh, as as Muslim women we have to be modest and um, this tiny hijab isn't um modest enough so it's, it isn't covering enough and you know you have to cover your bosom and all those things and i was young at that time and i didn't have bosom <laughs> and, and i was i was like why i do i don't have anything going on for me why do i have to cover cover anything at all <clears throat> and you know right. it never really gave any solid explanation so i just left it you know it's just one of those things and you know right. i did not I did not wear the, the long hijab anyway throughout my stay in the Quran memorization school. So. After secondary school, Kautha enrolled in a pre-degree program in Ocean State, southwestern Nigeria. It's this one-year diploma that students sometimes take before gaining admission into university. She continues to seek answers about Islam during her pre-degree program. And uh, then I started to know some of the brothers and sisters from the main campus that would come to the pre-degree campus to, you know, hang out with us. And, you know, I started to talk to them and decided to... I think that was my introduction into, <laughs> into you know, understanding Islam a little more than I... I mean, I never really understood anyway. My That was how I started to understand Islam. And, uh, yeah, I felt really good at that point, at that very moment. I felt I felt great. After her pre-degree program, she moved to the main university campus and became part of a close-knit Muslim community in her school. And they were having all these lectures and it felt really great. It just made me feel better. So it wasn't like I, I asked questions per se. I, I just was happy that uh, I was with Muslims. And that was it. That was it, at least during pre-degree. So, yeah. She attended lectures about the Quran and pillars of Islam. But it wasn't long before she noticed something that left her feeling unsettled. Let me just explain. So in the mosque, so we have our classes in the mosque and we also pray in that same mosque. First of all, one thing I noticed was that the female side was tiny compared to the male side. So let's say the the, the brothers, they had about, um, they could easily easily have about 20 rows when they are praying during solar and yeah. 20 rows you know how like a bunch of brothers in the mosque but then there were only three for the sisters so the women's side was much smaller than the men's side in the mosque that was the first thing that i noticed ever and but you know i didn't think too much of it i just thought the only thing i said at that time was uh why is this why is this place tiny compared to the brother side and then 
a lot of people came and said, oh, it's because women, they are not supposed to come to the mosque to pray. They expect that women will pray in the house and all that. That's why the place is small. And that was it. I didn't, I didn't say anything about it again. So we'd come there and then we'd do our classes, we'd pray. It wasn't just that the women's side of the mosque was considerably smaller than the men's. Kausa noticed it was always about the brothers. Another thing that I now noticed was that I whenever a, a lady, sister, so I'm just going to be using sister and brother now because mm-hmm. that's what you know we used to call ourselves. So whenever a sister is talking at the female side, um, they'll be like, oh no, don't talk. Don't talk too loud, loudly because the brother would hear your voice. Yeah, I'm like, why? Why? And uh, they were like, oh, it's because um, a woman's voice is an aura. So aura means, literally means nakedness. So a woman's voice is a nakedness. And I just did not understand that part. Yeah, what does that mean? The brothers are, are shouting and you can hear their voices reciting the Quran, shouting, arguing about something in the mosque. But we cannot talk because our voices are nakedness. How does that even make any sense? It felt like the Muslim community in Kalthas University required Muslim women, the sisters, to shrink themselves. And none of this applied to the Muslim men, the brothers. So I was taking in all of these things, even though they didn't sit well with me. But I never, at, in, at the beginning, I never really questioned it. I would not lie. I was just there like, okay. Mm-hmm. When they say something, I just like, oh, this doesn't make sense. But okay. Yeah. And... Uh, and then I was just, you know, let it be because at that time I did not want to, uh, you know, turn anybody against me. Kautha didn't ask too many questions because she was scared of losing this community she had just discovered. Okay, because um, we started wearing the jilbab. The jilbab is the hijab from head to toe. So it covers everything. So everything, the one piece. So I would wear sneakers underneath my my jilbab because mm-hmm. you know I was on Instagram at that time and then I was seeing all these um sisters, for example, in the UK, in Saudi Arabia, they they wear sneakers underneath their jilbab and I thought it was nice. So I started to buy sneakers and then wear it under my jilbab, and then they started, oh, why are you wearing sneakers underneath your jilbab? You shouldn't do that. Um, you are standing out. It's tabarud. Tabarud is uh, when you are act- attracting the male gaze. You're wearing yeah. a jilbab, which is basically the hijab covering that covers uh-huh. you from head to toe, such that it's only your hands that are showing, right? Yes. And then you wore sneakers with that. And then there was mm-hmm. the problem where these people said, you know what, you can't be wearing sneakers because you're standing out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's okay. that's that was it. Tabaruj. If a brother sees it, he might get. He might be attracted to me. So the brother could be attracted to you because of your sneakers. Sneakers, literally. Yeah. Okay. And uh, <laughs> and then I asked why, like uh, why, and that was the same excuse. Oh, brothers, brothers, brothers. I'm like, I'm not wearing this thing for brothers. This is very comfortable. Besides, these sneakers. At that time, they were not even colorful or anything. They were just like maybe black, gray. This Muslim community in her university made it feel like women had to bend themselves for men. It was always about changing who you are, how you speak, what you wear, for the brothers. And she thought, what about the sisters? Oh, it felt like uh, I was being erased. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. felt like uh, I was 
I, I was just living for these men. And, you know, when, when they, you know, say these things over and over again, sometimes you start to internalize some of these things. Maybe not all, but some. Yeah. That uh, maybe you now start to, you too, when you're walking on the streets, on the road, on campus, for example, you now start to, you know, notice, you start to, like, watch the way you walk or the way you talk yeah. so that these brothers will not see you. So sometimes I just call myself back and be like, what are you doing? After more than three years of putting up with all of this, Kauza had a crisis of faith. She even stopped praying. I just stopped because I thought if a religion would, you know, take away all these things from me, I cannot even breathe because I'm a woman. So what what does this mean? So I, I started to have this crisis of faith. I started to question a lot of things. So is this all I am about? Just to please men and wear all these dark clothes and, you know, is this all that there is to me? Kausa struggled. She had no one to talk to about what she was going through. She joined the Muslim community to understand the religion, to feel seen, but the opposite was happening. I just, I just shot out. I withdrew totally from, from that circle, which, which was, a, which was like another story entirely, but... Well, yeah, it wasn't a pretty, um, you know, time for me. I was in a very terrible space. A part of culture felt like something was amiss in the way this community propagated Islam. I had come to love Islam. I had come to understand why I needed to be a better Muslim. But now when you are telling me that because I'm a woman, I can't do this, I can't do that. Islam says this, Islam says that. I felt like, nah, this should, this isn't Islam. The Islam that I found found solace in, I don't think this is it. But then I couldn't, I did not know what material to read, where to start from. And I didn't want to start searching on the internet because there are very dangerous things on the internet. Her moment of clarity came in 2018 when she attended Ake Arts and Book Festival, one of Africa's biggest literary festivals. What I'd like to do to kick off is actually let... Um... Uh, both the, the panelists uh, say a few introductory words, either about yourself or about something that's burning that you want to say uh, to the people uh, before we get into uh, the meat. There was a panel with the famous Egyptian feminist, Mona El-Tahawi, that changed everything for Kautha. By the way, Mona was featured in episode two of this podcast. You should listen to it on any streaming platform if you haven't already. Okay, back to Kautha. So, um... Yeah, so Mona, during a panel discussion, she talked about, um, you know, being in the Middle East. And we know that middle, uh, the Middle East is, um, most of the countries in the Middle East are predominantly Muslim countries. So, um, you know, the population are majorly Muslim. And uh, she talked about, you know, growing up in the Middle East and the things that she went through in the hands of Muslim men. People who um, are supposed to be like the gatekeepers of the religion, in quotes. <laughs> and uh, I, I started to understand better because I used to think that, for example, Saudi Arabia was the poster country for all things Islam. 
mm-hmm. then she talked mm-hmm. about uh, being in Saudi Arabia and being, you know, harassed um, uh, in front of the Kaaba in Makkah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, wa- I was shocked because I didn't think at all that things like that happened. I never, ever thought that if in Saudi Arabia yeah. as a whole, that things like that would ever happen. Mona's panel made it clearer to Kautha that even in predominantly Muslim communities, women experience gender-based violence and sexual harassment. She had always just expected that Muslim men would uphold the rights of women as prescribed by the Quran. So I just, I just made me see that there was need for feminism. There's need for feminism in Islam because you can say that Allah has given women all the rights in the world. But then what are these people doing? The, the, the people who are supposed to protect the rights of these women, what, are, what exactly are they doing? They are not protecting these rights. So if we don't come out to speak up and demand that they do, they won't do anything because they are just comfortable the way they yes. like the, the, like the status quo. So, yeah. After that session, Kalsa started reading more on the need for feminism, particularly in religious spaces like her uni's Muslim community. She never subscribed to the way the community required women to shrink themselves. So this was a huge turning point for her. She cut them off. And no one really likes to be cut off. So when I when I left, let me just start from when I left that community in school, when I started to do things on my own, I, I got a lot of backlash. I got... Um, People saying things about me, people just cooking up stuff about me, and it actually made me have anxiety. I, that it triggered anxiety for me. I started having panic attacks and all that. I started literally to just sit down in the middle of the road because I couldn't move. My chest is tightening and all that. It was really terrible for me in that period. It was a lot to take in at the time, but Kalsa is a big girl now. She's not relying on any community to define what her religion or feminism should look like. Why do you think people use religion, Islam in this case, to justify like subjugating women? Because we see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that uh, number one, some people don't just, a lot of people don't know better. It's something that they've learned since God knows when, maybe for a very long time. They've, always, they've learned that this is how it's supposed to be and this is how it is. When Kalsa first joined that Muslim community in uni, she didn't know any better. It took a couple of years, a literary festival, and reading multiple books for her to recognize that women had rights in Islam and those rights need to be upheld. She thinks that those who use Islam to justify the discrimination of women are missing a lot of context from the Quran and Hadith. The hadith is the documented words and deeds of Prophet Muhammad, Islam's last prophet. Uh, <laughs> so usually I just tell people to read the Surah of yeah. the Prophet, the, the story of life of the Prophet, read stories, and also about women around the Prophet. Kalsa says her practice of Islam is based on the Quran and the life of the Prophet. The Prophet preached against sexual harassment. He upheld the status and dignity of women. She says she's not accepting anything less from anyone. That's what her feminism is about. My name is Okoya Dedeji. I'm a writer and editor based in Norwich, UK. Like we call her, Okpa is from a religious home. 
So we used to go to church on Sundays compulsorily. Um, spend like four hours, five hours in church. So my parents are workers, which means that we have to go to church by six a.m. We have to wake up by six a.m. to be in church for like seven. I'm not quite sure about time. And then we'd be in church at like 12 or 1, depending on Sunday. And then sometimes after school, we'd go to church around um, 6 in the evenings. And we won't be back until like 9 or 10. Um, and then weekends too, like Saturdays, we'd also go to church as well. Lift your hands up to the Lord and tell him how much you love him. You appreciate him. And then there were also like Friday vigils, which would happen in camp, which is like outside of Lagos. Um, we'd um, would go like in a bus, you know, some of the time in a bus with other church members, and would like sit down in a lot of traffic to get to camp. And what happens at camp is that the adults would pray, 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 and sing and do whatever adults do in camp. And you know, most times we kids would probably just be asleep. Um, so yeah, that was like, you know, that was like the cadence at which we used to go for religious activities. Okwe did not like that she had to be in church a lot of the time. She wanted to spend her time sleeping and playing like other kids her age. I so in my head, I was like, why would I spend four hours, five hours, six hours in church when I can worship from home, where, when I can, you know, watch TV and worship or I can read my Bible or, um, praise God from my house. Cause I just feel like. You know, they, they told us that God is everywhere. So, you know, why can't I do that as opposed to going to church all the time? She also had a lot of questions that went unanswered. But I remember I used to ask like other people, like say an uncle or the same I asked my dad's driver about different things. So one question I asked my dad's driver was um, if, you know, you know, so the Bible is essentially that, you know, you must be born again to go to heaven, right? So I think I was about nine or ten, and I asked my dad's driver, what if there's this woman in this faraway island, she hasn't heard about God, she doesn't know anything about Jesus, and she's a very good person, she gives to the poor, she does very good deeds. Does that mean that she's not going to go to heaven just because she hasn't accepted um, Jesus as her Lord and Savior? And I remember him saying that. I think he said something about it not being possible, you know, for there to be this person on this faraway island that hasn't heard about Jesus. But I remember I kept pressing and asking, you know, let's just assume that there is. And, you know, he couldn't give me answers that I was comfortable with. You know, it all pointed to the fact that, yes, she's not going to go to heaven because she hasn't accepted Jesus, right? And I wasn't very comfortable with that. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I was like, People are good sometimes and you know they don't need to say oh i love jesus or you know they don't need to accept a certain faith to you know go to heaven does that mean they're going to go to hell and you know suffer that eternal torment it wasn't like it just didn't sit right with me i think that was one of the most pressing questions that i had as a as a child it wasn't just the questions Okwe noticed something else and even beyond that, it's like sometimes when I saw, so a lot of times right, as a child, people would do things like conform to generals or kind of castigate women or discriminate against women. And they'll use the Bible to um, to justify their, their behavior, right? Um, I remember some, I think one instance was, the, was a girl being beaten and stripped naked when her father found out she was pregnant. 
and you know it was just like oh it's so it's evil to get pregnant or it's bad to get pregnant as a young girl and all of that and in my head i was like well she's not the only one that did whatever you know whatever needs to happen for sex you know for her to have a baby or something it wasn't long before she realized that the Christian community around her placed the burden of sin on women. Why is she the only one that gets punished for for this, you know? And, you know, it, it all came back to the fact that, you know, fornication is a sin. But the fact that fornication is a sin, you know, at the end of the day, it's women who get punished for whatever consequence, whatever society deems is the consequence of um, fornication. So, again, that was something I wasn't comfortable with. And I would hear, like, you know, my mom or other people say um you know don't have sex before marriage don't do this but at the same time they're not placing that burden on men you know and even if the bible does say that you know you shouldn't fornicate you shouldn't you know commit adultery and all of that it was always on women not to not on men you know you'd see women you see men get away with things that women do so she told me this story Something had happened in the church she attended as a child. There's this story that I just remembered right now. A woman in church, so she and a guy, they were dating. And he, I think they had sex before getting married. And I think she was pregnant, you know. And I think they tried to cover up the pregnancy because if the, if the church had found that, that they were pregnant or she was pregnant before they got married, I think the church wouldn't have married them. But eventually they found out somehow and then it got married and then eventually she lost the baby and then a lot of people in church were saying you know what this is god's punishment on her because she had sex before getting married and i just it was just so wild that people who say that god loves people that jesus loves that god sent his son to die for us will say that and you know it was just so wild so it was a lot of seeing people use like do evil things or judge people especially women unfairly and use the bible to justify it that made me question um religion question fact that oh yes like i don't think this is for me Opa's parents did not tolerate anything that seemed like she was questioning god so a lot of her questions about religion went unanswered she was also worried that many people seemed to justify their prejudice against women with Christianity. That didn't sit well with her. So when she got into university in Lagos, away from her parents, she stopped going to church. Um, so when I started university, I was I moved in into my grandfather's house and which was like outside um outside campus and it it wasn't it wasn't in the best area, so I would I would have to come home early sometimes, you know, from school, um, and I found that that first of all I wasn't willing to do the extra, extra whatever extra was to go to church. So maybe taking a cab back home in the evenings, or that's like for evening services that happen in school. I would just make the excuse of, oh, yeah, I have to be at home by X time so I can't go to church. Or even on Sundays, I will just stay back because my grandfather, you know, wasn't really bothered. I mean, he used to go to church, but he wasn't really bothered um, that I wasn't going to church or not. So the weekend... In uni, Okwa was a law student. She took a course in her third year that changed everything. And I took a course called Gender and the Law. 
and I was discovering feminism for the first time, right? And I was reading stuff about generals. I was reading stuff about patriarchy. Like, I think it was the first time I actually had words for things that I had kind of believed or had issues with as a child. Um, And so I took this course and it made me kind of rethink women's place in religion. made me think about the way women were treated it made me think about yeah generally just like women are treated really badly right in church in my parents church um a lot of the time people the pastor would preach and it would have nothing to do with it it might not have anything to do with you know um women but then it would come back to women should do this women should cook women should serve the husbands women should do this and it wasn't just like at my parents church it was something a common theme that I was hearing everywhere, right? Women were treated less um, by by the church. And so I was just a bit confused, right? Um, I was confused about, first of all, like, why is it that the Bible treats women like this? Or why, why is it that the church treats treat women like this? But I was also confused about, because I was, I was essentially becoming a feminist. To Okwe, it felt like the church didn't care about women. And as someone just discovering the importance of feminism, this confused her. And I was a bit confused about, so if I'm a Christian, how do I marry, you know, my Christianity with feminism? Because, you know, like I said, the church treats women like this and they use the Bible to um, justify, yes, they use the Bible to justify their beliefs, right? So how do I then say that women should not be the neck or the shoulder you know women deserve to be equal to men um so those were some of the questions i had okwa's discovery of feminism coincided with her move back to church after three years of avoiding worshiping in church she found a small cozy fellowship in school that didn't discriminate against women i started going to a church that didn't that wouldn't preach things that would upset me about like women and I said it and I liked it. it. It was kind of accidental, right? I went to the church and I realized that, you know, it was kind of more modern than what I was used to. And and then I realized that, you know, they actually cared. So I would, you know, it, it would just be like a subtle remark. Or maybe maybe the pastor wasn't knowingly, but like it would just be like a remark where the pastor says something that is kind of uplifting for women. And it was, you know, it was I was happy to hear that. It felt good to be back in church, and not just any church, one that actually respected the rights and dignity of women. But there was still that underlying question of feminism and Christianity. Like, I think more conversations around that came up, and people, like, question, question, you try to interrogate me and say, you can't be a a feminist and be Christian. You can't be a feminist and be Christian. And I think that... At this time, I was starting to come into my own in terms of Christianity, right? I was starting to do my own research and read for myself and try to, like, understand. Um, and I think that at this point, you know, it wasn't it wasn't immediate, right? Because apart from feminism, there were other questions I had. So it wasn't immediate, in 2018, after a couple of years of going back and forth, trying to reconcile Christianity with feminism, it finally hit up me. But I think at the core of whatever questions I had, it was just like, you know what, 
Jesus kept saying that he's love and he loves everyone. And I think I just kind of extrapolated that and the way Jesus treated women to feminism, right? You know, like, so Paul is one of the big things that Paul is one of the big characters or the most influential character in the New Testament Bible. And a lot of men and anti-feminists will use Paul to justify the fact that, you know, women cannot or women are lesser than men you know especially within the institution of marriage or even outside of marriage even at work or in church um women should not be leaders and all of that and i felt that that was kind of weird because first of all jesus loved women right he treated women very kindly and you see like all his interactions with women we're always kind, we're always thoughtful, we're not demeaning. Um, and so at that point, Jesus started to become my model for relationships, but also just the way I think about what is women's place in the world. Should women be equal to men? Okwa went digging for answers on her own in Bible verses. She realized that Jesus was kind in the way he interacted with and treated women. She decided what her feminism would be about, how Jesus treated women with compassion and care. Her research also affirms that some of the Christians that use religion to justify the mistreatment of women misinterpreted Bible verses or took them out of context. So it was me kind of going into the Bible and saying, okay, like, what does God say about women? You know, and there are verses in the Bible to just show that, first of all, women and men are equal. You know, I think there's this verse, I can't remember right now, but there's this verse where um, that the Bible says that, oh, like, everyone is equal, like, both men and women of all races, all people are equal and all of that. But you find that, that people will still come and tell you that, you know, men and women are not equal and all of that, which is just crazy because I just, I just tell people that, Anyone that comes to say that is kind of lazy, you know, in terms of like, they just want to use the Bible as an excuse to justify bad behavior. Because at the end of the day, the question is, what would Jesus do in this situation? So I, I've noticed the common thread is to just pick out one part of the scripture and use it and then not forget and forget that, you know, there's other parts that say other things. So for instance, I think the most popular one is the one where Paul tells women to submit to their husbands and that that scripture is so popular like it's preached everywhere at weddings in churches everywhere like on social media you see it as well but the funny thing is that there's a a subsequent verse that says that men should love their wives as christ loved the church and my question at the end of the day is how did christ love the church he laid down his life for it. he died for the church he literally died for the church and so nobody talks about that part. You say women should submit to men and submit to their husbands. And so I asked Oper what she would say to someone who believed that Christianity and feminism didn't go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I would say, first of all, that drop your biases, right? Um, drop your biases and try to do your homework, right? I think that I took a lot of time before I did, like went on my own to do my research because I felt like I wanted to rely on what the authority was saying. Like, so the authority in this sense were like was men of God and all of that. But I think that 
the Bible should be your authority and just your own research. If you're a Christian, right? Even though she has been able to reconcile her feminism with Christianity, she knows that it is not a straightforward process. If you, if you are struggling with it, it's okay to take your time. It's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to come back to this or I don't necessarily want to be associated because I do think that a lot, and maybe I'm, you know, I'm privileged or I'm lucky in this instance, but I think that a lot of people, a lot of women especially, have suffered from men of God or from, you know, people generally who use the Bible and you who use Christianity to do all sorts of, you know, evil things to women, to demean women, to hurt women, to discriminate against women. So that happens a lot. And I can understand your hurt. I can understand why you would say that, you know what, I can't be a, fe- I can't be a Christian feminist. I can't call myself a Christian, especially because of what has happened. So it's okay to dissociate yourself from, you know, Christianity. It's okay to take your time. You know, it's okay to say, I'm not going to do this, right? I feel like, you know, it's your choice, right? I also think that, you know, if you need help, right, you can talk to people who, like, are a bit more aware about these things. But if that's not where the route you're headed, I think that it's fine. Like, if She's not saying people shouldn't consider being feminist and Christian. She's saying it takes time. And that's okay. It's good to know that Kautha and Okwe have found ways to manage their feminism with religion. Let's take a break. When we come back, I ask a pastor and an Islamic scholar what religion really says about women's rights and why it is increasingly difficult to become feminist and be religious. Welcome back. We've talked a lot about how religion has been used to discriminate against women and how, as a result of it, many feminists like Okwe and Kautha, who are religious, struggle to reconcile both ideologies. Islam recognizes women as, like, in terms of equality, the same way as men, because at the end of the day, we're spirit. You know, we are souls. We are created for purpose to serve God. But then the way Muslims are interpreting the scripture is where we're having problem. And that's the reason why it's so difficult for you to reconcile that. That's Jamila Fage. She's a media analyst who is well-versed in Islamic scholarship. Jamila says Islam supports the rights of women. It's only complicated because these rights sometimes get lost in translation. The Quran is in Arabic. A lot of us do not speak Arabic, so we rely on translation. When you look at translation, a lot of it is translated by men. The saddest part about translation, especially for me, where I'm interested in the most right now, what my commitment is personally, is in language. I realize that, alhamdulillah, I am very, very fortunate. I may speak Hausa as like my mother tongue, but I basically really have English more so as my actual language. So I'm so fortunate to be able to say I have so many different access of translations that I could go to. So if this particular ayah is something that, you know, it says equality, but then they change it to equity and the Arabic word is this, that, and the other, since they cannot change Arabic, but then this particular translator is saying equality and that one is saying equity, I could easily, um, you know, verify that and say, oh, okay, well, you know what? This particular information, like I could go with this translation. But when you go to Hausa, it's only one translator. 
official translator. One. And you're talking about this is like how many years? Like 60, 70, almost 100 years ago. And when it comes to that, there's even dialect. So you could see when you're taking the house of translation, you could see where some of the words say spouses, for example, like zoji or zoja in Arabic. It'll like some translation, if you look at English, some will call it spouses, some will call it wives, right? Jamila is saying that depending on what language it is or who is translating the Quran, the meaning and context of certain words and verses can change. Interestingly, Laju Iren, author, filmmaker and pastor, says something similar about Christianity. You have to fully understand. So, for example, when, when, the, when the Bible says that the woman, that the man is the head of the woman, the New Testament was written in the Greek. In the Greek, the same word for wife is used for woman. So when it says that the man is the head of the woman, what it means is that the husband is the leader in the relationship. It doesn't mean that every man is the head of every woman. Laji is basically saying that scripture can indeed be lost in translation. So many times people don't take time to fully study in context. Do you understand? To fully study in context. When the Bible says that the man is the head of a home, and I agree with that 100%, he doesn't, it doesn't stop there. It says that, the man should be willing to give himself for the wife just like Christ died for the church. So for the Bible context of leadership or headship, it's about service. In Matthew 20, Jesus was speaking. He says, people, people who are outside our kingdom, the way they view leadership is that you lord it over people. He said, but not so with you. Whoever wants to be great amongst you must first be your servant. So the Bible concept of headship is that you love someone enough to die for them. Of course, so as a leader in the relationship, it's not just so that you can enforce all your authority, not listen to your wife, but it's so that if your wife's life is ever in danger, just like Christ died for the church, you can lay down your life for your wife. So context is extremely important. Extreme is an extremely important rule of Bible study. Okay. Lajo and Jamila say that religion does not discriminate against women. So, why is it so common for people to justify the subjugation of women by using it? Like with the Muslim community in Kalthas University and the church where I attended as a child. So sometimes it isn't that people don't want, it isn't that, isn't that the truth is not obvious, but sometimes people have wrong, wrong motives. So even in the times of Jesus, like I said, there were times where people would want to thwart the truth just to suit they are um, to suit to suit what would benefit them. Where somebody will say, "Why are you healing a woman on the Sabbath?" And Jesus was very vocal about speaking against people who use religion as a blanket to do evil. And the truth is that whether you like it or not, there are people who have done that. I get what Ladri is saying. Sometimes it's not about religion. Some people are just mean, and they don't rate women, so they find ways to justify their meanness. Because the women are not educating themselves from the perspective of the dean, I realized that in order for you to really like have a um, conversation and you see this play out in our social spaces, you see it play out, especially on social media, I think it's twofold. So you have cultural lens, right? A lot of times like these ayahs and the stories and the, um, you know, from the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So whether it's uh, Sirah that you're studying or whether it's the Quran that you're studying, people are interpreting these stories and the Quran through the lens of culture. I also understand Jamila. She's saying that women get scammed of their rights because they don't understand the scripture enough. 
You're more likely to call BS on anyone who tries to bully you using religion if you understand that your religion doesn't allow bullying. My separate conversations with Jamila and Laju lasted an hour each. There was a lot to learn from them. The summary is, Islam and Christianity have nothing against the quality of the sexes. A lot of people just misunderstand scripture. It's difficult to unpack such a complex topic in just one episode, so we're going to end it here. My major takeaway from this is that your religion should not affect your decision to be a supporter of women's rights. If anything, it should drive it. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Like Girls. If you want to get in touch, visit ilikegirls.co. Also, if you like this episode, please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. This episode is produced by me, Aisha Salahuddin. Audio engineering is by Mo Isu. Samia Salamutu is our editor. Rahina Salhassan is our associate producer. Mira Momoyele is our graphic designer. And our theme music is by Bangs with a double G. The other music you heard throughout this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our partners, Radio Now 95.3 FM, Newswire Nigeria, and Femme Africa. I'll catch you all on the next episode.